You're listening to the Irish Times. Are you excited, Pat? I'm excited about what? What are you? Oh, come on! What? What? It's World Cup week. What? Could, what could you possibly not be excited about? I am actually very excited about the World Cup because um, I read a piece on the Guardian last week by Rob Smythe about one of the great soccer writers. He is a terrific soccer writer, yeah. and he uh, wrote a piece about Josie Marr's goal uh, against Northern Ireland in 1986. Josie Marr, and he had a link in the piece to the top 20 goals from the 1986 World Cup. Oh yeah, <laughs> which. Um, I just watched and it just made me realise oh, I'm so up for the World Cup. Also, the goals were spectacular but it was also helped that the 1986 World Cup had the best nets it did, I think yeah. of any World in Cup Mexico, ever. Yeah, yeah. Igor Belanov got a goal in a game where he hammered a shot into the top corner and it actually kind of came out as fast as it went in even though the nets were huge yeah. it was glorious. I think it's one of my favourite goals ever. There is a it, World Cups define men's lives in a very not a not a particularly uh uh, impressive way, but uh, I think everybody uh, remembers, like dots their lives by by World Cups and remembers their first one, the first the first one that they remember. You and I are about the same age, so eighty six is our. It's just at the limit of what we remember, barely. more or less. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I absolutely remember Josie Marr from that from that World Cup. Um, uh, so much so that uh, I saw. There was a thing going around there a couple of weeks ago about the the Panini sticker album from from the '86 World Cup, and I was looking through it, going looking for the for I looking at the Brazil one, going where the hell is Josimar? He was my, he was my favorite player from that World Cup, apart from Maradona, and I learned from that Rob Smythe piece that uh, he was such a late addition to the squad that he didn't even make it into the Panini album. He didn't even have a club when he went to the World Cup. Yeah, yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Also, while you mentioned Panini uh, sticker albums, because we've been doing a few pieces about them recently, about the cost of them being extortionate. Mm. Um, in Peru, it, there have been many, many fights breaking out in shops over the last packets of Panini sticker okay. albums because Peru are in their first World Cup, I think, since... 19... 36 years, I think. Yeah, since yeah. Seven, well, I was about to say 78, 74 then, is it? No. But 82, I would have thought. Oh, were they in 82? I think they were. Regardless, yeah. they're very excited in Peru, excited enough to start fights over the sticker albums. Well, I'm very excited here. We're going to do a preview podcast uh, later in the week. The first game is on Thursday night, so we'll have one out uh, before that uh, at a time yet to be uh, determined. But we'll uh, we'll talk about that as the week goes on. Uh, we will get on to uh, some hot GA chat later on. Uh, it was a massive weekend in uh, hurling and um, possibly significant in football as well. But we're going to start with rugby today. Ireland lost the first test in uh, Australia on Saturday, 18-8. Jerry Thornley was there and has moved on to Melbourne uh, and is going to talk to us about it. Thanks for joining us, Jerry. You're welcome, Malky. Uh, Ireland uh, lost the first test, of course, as we all know at this stage. Um, it's a, 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 a feeling we're not all that used to, or we haven't we haven't become all that accustomed to. Um, is it a bit of a reality check? Yeah, I think so. I think it is actually, and it's not just for Ireland. When you look across the results over the weekend, the line for Wales winning Argentina, you see Italy losing Japan, you see England blow a big lead away to South Africa. And you see um, France getting obliterated in the second half, albeit some extenuating circumstances by the All Blacks. But then most of all, of course, more relevant to us, you see um, the Wallabies beating Ireland. And it's a reminder that the brand of rugby in the Southern Hemisphere is a little bit different to those internecine localised derbies that really make up the Six Nations. Um, it's a higher tempo. There were some big hits in the first 15, 20 minutes that drew a line in the sand. That was a little bit different from anything they'd experienced um, in the Six Nations and with a slightly, slightly experimental team. It's a good exposure for these players. Um, I think 28 of the 32 squad have never toured with Ireland and Australia before. Um, so I think it was a good reality check. And as Declan Kidney always used to say, and I'm sure plenty of other coaches say it too, you learn more from your defeats than you do from your wins. And uh, it'll be fascinating to see how the team and the squad react next weekend in Melbourne to this first defeat since, I think, was it Wales in the penultimate round of the 2017 Six Nations? The long, long time for an Irish team to go without defeat, the longest in history. So, um, 
yeah, I suppose it is a bit of a reality check across the board. As you said, Jerry, it was a very physical encounter. Uh, the Wallabies' backline power was was seriously impressive. Um, with and we'll say David Pocock and Michael Hooper were very impressive, weren't they? Yeah, um, the physicality was um, something you'd expect from any team coached by Michael Chaka. He kind of rather insists on it, well, along with high work rate. But it was it wasn't like say the revenge mission from the All Blacks in the Aviva Stadium two weeks after losing in Chicago. It was. Um, it was ferocious. There were some ferocious big hits, but they were they were very legal. It wasn't in any way dirty or aggressively overly aggressive. There weren't high hits. Um, you remember, Sam Kane could have got and should probably got sighted that day in the Viva Stadium. Malachi Fakatawa they got a, a one week suspension for um, clotheslining um, Simon Zebo. So there were no incidents remotely like that. It, but it was it, it was striking how much those big early hits went in. And, of course, that gives a surge of energy to their teammates, and it means nobody can shirk their defensive responsibilities. And kind of like a, it was a, a welcome to Australia from the Wallabies. And uh, I thought, you know, like Conor Murray picked himself up, dusted himself off, Joey Carberry did, others did, and just gone on with it. And, and in many respects, I thought Ireland played quite well. Um, and I think it was a very, I agree with Joe Smith's assertion that there were very tiny margins, very slim margins. And that makes the learnings that I'm sure they're going to be talking about all week all the more relevant. Um, in particular, when you think about it, like Ireland had as many line breaks slightly more. They were unusually profligate in the opposition kind of red zone, 30, 40 metres from the Aussie line. When you think of two kicks out in the full by Jacob Stockdale, one by Conor Murray, the chance that CJ Standard didn't quite finish off um, had he got located Rob Herring with the switch, or had he just opted for a recycle? Maybe he did ground the ball, quite possibly, but either way, that it was quite unusually wasteful. You add in Joey Carberry's kick, and for that dominant 20 minutes in the third quarter, Ireland only got three points when realistically they should have got 13, and you're looking at a different game. That being said, I think that uh, Israel allows athleticism in the air is just almost... I don't barbering on a couple of step ladders and giving them to your wingers and your fullback. I don't really know how you can compete with Salah in the air. He's just phenomenal. Was that an Aussie rules game today between Melbourne and Collingwood? And it's just you can see why that why why Salah is just he would be made for a sport like that as well. He's played it because he's just so brilliant in the air. And it's not just catching the ball; it's the way he lands, the way he offloads them as well. And they stretched hard, and there's no doubt about it. And they were very dynamic. So I think. You know, this is a reminder that there are a lot of good sides in the world, uh, not just in the Six Nations, and are under test, being tested now in different ways. And you're right, Pocock and Hooper, particularly Pocock, was brilliant over the ball. He hadn't played a test match since the, oh, I think it was Twickenham, December 2016. He took a year off, spent time on a farm by Riverbank in um, Zimbabwe. This is his first game for the Wallabies in 18 months. And like Richie McCaw and Brad Thorne and Oh, who else? Stan Carter. Others have taken a break from the game. He looks really refreshed. Um, and he makes such a difference to Wallabies in tandem with Hooper. He's so good over the ball. He's so hard to shift. Bundiaki got one good shot on him, but otherwise it was difficult to miss. Now, that being said, he's borderline. He does flirt with the laws. He, you know, he, he flirts with them quite a bit. And the way he goes in initially, he goes almost off his feet and then bounces back up. And uh, he did concede two penalties that Joey Carby converted into three-pointers, but he slowed down a lot of ball and eventually just became very difficult for Ireland to get that recycling game going and make it tell. that There was an awful lot of times when the Aussie tackler would roll over on the wrong side of the ball before getting out of the way. and You could see Conor Murray got very frustrated with us a couple of times. He didn't believe they were knock-ons. And the one near the end, four minutes in time, with Ireland still, you know, would have needed another score but it was quite clear that their reserve hooker played the ball with his hands on the ground. I don't know how Marius um, Van der Westhuizen missed it, so there were frustrations there as well. But you've got to look after your own ruck ball, and you'd imagine that there would be somebody aping Pocock and training all week, and that Ireland would go out and treat him much like Leinster treated Tyke Byrne in the semi-final. The irony being, of course, that Tyke Byrne might be one of them. Um, talk to me about uh, Carberry, uh, Jerry. Uh, I mean, you can't, you can't, uh, on the face of it, ask for much more than uh, when he is replaced by Johnny Sexton. Ireland are ahead. I mean, like that, that has got to work in his favour. How did he do? Uh, he looked very composed. He, his temperament shines through Malachy. He's got a, 
he's got a test match temperament. There's no doubt about it. He loves being out there. He loves playing, loves calling the shots. And a lot of the shape about Ireland in attack was very reminiscent of when Johnny Sexton bears. There's not a huge difference. Um, he looked composed. It was one lovely bit of footwork to release Bundiaki. There was another little bit of a counter-attack when he drops into the backfield because he brings that to his game as well. Um, there was one loose pass of a turnover towards the end of the first half and there was that missed goal kick which would have put Ireland in front uh, earlier in the second half. So that was three points he left behind which is disappointing and annoying for him. But all in all, I think it was a very composed performance. He's just a hugely talented kid. You've got to remember he's only 22. He's two years younger than when Johnny Saxon broke through with Leinster, never mind Ireland. And uh, it's a great investment in him. You know, Joe Schmidt has identified him as the heir apparent or the, or the backup to Johnny Sexton. Uh, Michael Checker raved about him afterwards. We know what Gray and Henry thinks about him. Maybe it's something to do with the fact he spent his first 10 years of his life in New Zealand. He's got a kind of a slightly Southern Hemisphere-esque style to his play. Um, he's very good in his feet. He takes hits. He tackles well for not a huge boy. And um, I think this is the first of a bit major investment in him now. You know, it was good that he, he came off without being injured for the first time in his three test starts. And um, it's the biggest game in his career. He handled himself well. And you, ideally, hopefully, Carberry will get a, a maybe two games next November, maybe a game in the Six Nations, a couple of warm-up games in the Phillips World Cup, as well as doing all the training sessions, and of course, getting loads more games for Munster. So this, I think his, um, the investment in him is about to really ramp up now. And we'll start seeing more and more of him at number 10. And we'll start to see, uh, he'll get better and better. Jerry, I saw a few people questioning Joe Schmidt's uh, team selection for this, purely because he tried a few things. But that's the whole point of this series, really, isn't it? That he gets the chance to try a few things in, in a difficult environment. Well, completely utterly. If he doesn't try things and Ireland go to the World Cup and suddenly there's three or four injuries and the backup haven't played any, any, hardly any rugby for Ireland in the intervening year and a half, then he'd be criticised for that, and more rightly so, arguably. This is a rare window to really try and make an investment in the squad and make the squad stronger. Um, to a degree, that can be done again next November, but nobody wants um, Ireland to treat the nations as anything less than a tournament to go after and win. Look how, look how beneficial it was for Irish rugby at so many levels, winning the Grand Slam, only the third in history. So this was an opportunity. It was credit in the bank. It was a 12-match winning sequence. And this offered an opportunity to, to try a few different combinations, to play Carberry. Um, you know, that, that, that was mostly, that was invaluable. I'm sure Ty Byrne will come in next week. Um, John Ryan, Rob Herring, you know, these were all good investments. Uh, I think that if you don't do this, it's a wasted opportunity. It has to be done. I remember the four-year cycle culminating in 2011 when Dan Carter played something like 41 of the 46 intervening matches. I remember doing that, something like that. Cue the World Cup quarterfinal. He goes off the pitch against France and the All Blacks are rudderless. And so everybody remembers what happened against Argentina in the World Cup quarterfinal when admittedly the casualty list and losing Sean O'Brien to suspension as well and Johnny Sexton and Peter Armani and Paul O'Connell and Jarrett Payne, probably five of Ireland's six most influential players any team would have struggled, even the All Blacks, if you take out five of your six most influential players. But the more investment in the backup players, because you're going to need a squad in a World Cup for sure, and this is with the World Cup in mind. So I would have, I would have no truck with that at all. I think, he was, I think it was absolutely understandable that he would make a few changes. And what's more, although the game management is really good, Pat, and we've got a great system in Ireland looking after players um, and not overplaying them. The, 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 the 20 or so matches they played all this season, even those were in the Lions tour, they're high-octane matches. They're really important big games. And in the last few months of the season, they've been either Six Nations games, Interpro derbies, or you know, quarterfinals, semifinals, stroke finals of competitions as well. So they're, they're fairly full-on. And it was understandable that a few of the Leinster lads were either left on the bench or admitted altogether. I think Dan Levy was carrying a bit of a hip injury anyway. But I would imagine that Sexton will start, that Levy will come back in, that Gary Ringos will come into the midfield just to provide some bit more, bit more footwork maybe, a bit more variety in attack. And this would be a more, like, if you like, full-strength, recognisably full-strength Irish team in the second test. Jerry, the, as you say, you know, this is the time to, to 
if not experiment, experiment's probably the wrong word, um, uh, personnel-wise, yeah. invest personnel-wise, indeed. If you take, though, uh, the the other aspect, you know, the, the way Ireland play, you know, their... The way that they approach games, um, how they, you know, they, I, I saw again, like they led the territory stats, possession stats, all that sort of carry on. Um, is there a development there? And is this is this series a place for that kind of thing as well? Yeah, well, I think that when you saw Johnny Saxon come on, you definitely saw him take the ball to the line that little bit more and bring his the players outside and inside him to the line a little bit more and ask more questions in that respect. I think that you're right. I can. I, I know. I think this question is coming from a little bit of a disappointment in the fact that Ireland failed to score a try, and there's no doubt about it that in that multi-phase attack after the standard um, break was not awarded with a try from the ensuing multi-phase attack, which ended with Pocock um, getting into the jackal and winning a turnover penalty. Ireland were quite narrow. There was a lot of one-off runners, and they were. They were running into a goal wall and they were actually bouncing backwards a bit. And that was a bit disappointing. But looking at the game again, I thought that, you know, there was Murray's break off the base of the scrum. There was Bundyaki's break on the outside that from Peter Armani's tip on pass. And I thought they, the team really used Armani's handling skills, made more use of them very well. Um, I thought Bundy had a very good game, although on a couple of occasions he might have moved the ball on. Uh, notably in the build-up to the Israel Folau try um, that was overruled, um, a bit harshly maybe against Australia. The wild space on the edge there, and it would have been lovely to see him move the ball on to Carney and then again maybe to Larmer and get Larmer into a bit of space. You'd like to see a player like Jordan Larmer get more of an opportunity one-on-one out wide uh, and work him into space. Ironically, the one time they did, and it looked like when he danced in, um, they were wrongly called back for a knock-on against Conor Murray at the base. But yeah, it, they're, they're small margins and not a little bit further away. I just think that when Gary Ringrose is added to the mix, it might add a little bit more creativity at wide, certainly a bit more footwork. Um, and I would imagine we'll see a big improvement in Ireland's attacking game. We, Ireland have come off the Six Nations, not only as grandstand winners, but having scored a record number of tries for an Irish team in the Six Nations. They haven't just become blunt overnight. Uh, excellent. Listen, Jerry. thanks a million for taking the time and uh, enjoy the coming week and the week that come after that. And uh, we will talk to you again sure. after the second test. Let's talk some football, Pat. Yeah, you were in Croke Park on Sunday watching... I was. While Dublin. all the uh, fun was going on elsewhere, I was sitting watching uh, Dublin uh, atomize yet another uh, Leinster team yawning their way to, uh, what was it, a 19-point win. What I want to know, Pat, is how these bookies uh, put handicap spreads at ridiculous numbers and then almost hit them spot on. Like, the, the spread for Dublin Longford was 18 points and they won by 19. The spread for Dublin Wicklow a couple of weeks ago, I think, was 21 and they won by 22. Like, it's, that's amazing that they can hit it that closely. That is amazing because <laughs> they've done it a few times in the hurling this year as well, which yeah. you'd imagine would be a little bit harder to kind of ping exactly. They got the Galway Offaly handicap spot on there a few That's weeks right, ago. That's right, actually, yeah, yeah, by 12, yeah. Yeah, they absolutely nailed it. <laughs> I noticed your match report, It um, y- you basically tried to gloss over the football uh, as much as you could, really. I didn't try. I mean, I, I you did. Absolutely I did. glossed over the football. Anybody who wants to know uh, the exact details of what happened, I think just look at the scoreline. And that'll do it for you. Yeah. There's nothing really more to say. The most interesting part of the game, in a way, uh, was James Givney's um, hit on Cluxton, which alarmingly, you wouldn't have seen this from, because you probably didn't see it on television. Desi Dolan didn't think was a red card. I wonder is that just because Desi Dolan is, is a preternaturally nice fella and doesn't doesn't want to see the underdogs lose a man. Uh, because uh, if he doesn't think that's a, a red card, I... I implore him to uh, go out, go out to the pitch with, <laughs> with uh, a couple of young lads, uh, get them to kick high balls into him, and get them to come in and poleaxe him the way Stephen Cluxton was poleaxed, um, and, and <laughs> let him decide then whether it's a red. It was a, it was two red cards. Yeah, I think I think James McGivney, this is my, this is what it looked like from sitting in the stand, and I actually saw it. Uh, uh, because I know a lot of people kind of looked away and didn't actually catch it. But I, I 
So exactly. Um, the Cluxton punched it away, and I think McGivney looked at him and went, "He's he's there. He's prone. I'd probably only get a yellow card here. Mm. I can I can go in. I can lay one on him, and probably only get a yellow card. It'll be late. I, and now there was not amount of deliberation. It's a split second thought. But I think he went in there going, "Yeah, it's probably a yellow. Sure, I'll take it." And I think he probably got him too well, and ended up. It was a stone-cold red card. There was a brilliant picture in the Irish Times today of just in the split second after the hit and Cluxton has had, has been turned from the x-axis through to the y-axis <laughs> and there's um, a third player in the shot, a Longford player, who is gazing the complete opposite direction because he's looking at the ball. Exactly. And he doesn't see the hit at all. That's, that's how, how late it was. That's how far the ball had gone away. Yeah. And, and Cluxton, as you say, has, has moved horizontal with the force of the hit. Um, and, you know, all, all laughter aside, um, it could be quite serious, you mm. know. Uh, there was a picture in social media last night of Cluxton going to A&E in the matter. Now, I presume it's all very precautionary and what have you. But if there is anything long-term there, if it turns out, okay, it's not going to really matter in the, in the Leinster final, of course. But the Super 8s is, are five weeks away. Yeah. You know, the first first game in the Super 8s are the 14th of July, uh, 14th and 15th of July. Like, we'll find out what, they're, what they are. You know, the, we, we've always said that um, if you took one or other of Dear McConnelly or Stephen Cluxton out of that Dublin team, you'd find out an awful lot about them. I mean, they've, they have plenty of people to come in, but it's gonna, it makes it a lot more interesting. The prospect of him not being there, like... They've I think you can argue though it's more serious than Connolly because this oh, is, exactly, this exactly. Is losing, I was just throwing his name into the yeah, mix now. But yeah. this is them losing their quarterback Absolutely, essentially. Yeah. And look, they've been grooming Evan Comfort for for a few years. Um, he, anybody that's seen him play for the under twenty ones, he is a he is a Cluxton prototype. You know that's the way he manages the game in exactly the same way. You know that that it's it's not like they're bringing in a guy who doesn't know how to vary his kickouts or anything like that. That's, you know, that's his game as well. Like, he, he has grown up watching watching this guy. But you've got to do it. You know, he's never done it with even a crowd of 50,000 people watching, never mind 80,000 if it, if it comes to the bit, if he has to play deep, deep into the summer. Um, it's it's going to be interesting. You know, it, it, has, it has put a wrinkle into the summer... We don't know at the minute what uh, what the injury is, how long he's going to be out, if indeed he's going to be out. Maybe he'll be fine, maybe he'll be back. Like, he certainly didn't want to go off. Mm. It was very funny, well, not very funny, but uh, he had been down and getting treatment and had got gingerly to his feet and had gone back and stood on his, on his goal line and kind of looked up to see Evan Comerford coming towards him. And he kind of went, no, no, I'm grand, I'm grand. But the substitution had already been made. So he act- he wanted to play on. But whether that's the adrenaline of the moment or just his own sort of stubbornness, who knows. Um, it's gonna be, it, it is going to be interesting to watch it all wash out now because Cluxton is such a big part of that team, big part of how they play. We don't know. It adds an unknown that, that wasn't there before yesterday and was the only interesting thing out of the game. Will Leash put up any no. small barrier in the no, final? Not really, no, no. That, like, Leash are a grand team, but Leash were in Division 4 this year. Like, yeah. you know, they're coming, they're getting better. They're, you know, they could be, uh, you could see them going up out of Division 3 next year into Division 2, but they're they're not at the races there with, with Dublin. Like, they, look, the Leinster Championship is a wasteland. There's, no, there's nothing to say about it, you know. There's no, there's no team within within an ocean of Dublin. And so it is kind of pointless talking about it, really. Um, the upshot of yesterday was that Cardo going to the qualifiers now. Yeah. They're going to meet uh, Tyrone. Yeah. <laughs> I saw Tyrone and Meath on Saturday night yeah. and it was just a horrific game of football <laughs> to watch. It, it was... And there, you know, that, the Cardo game would be far worse than that. <laughs> well, that's great. I hope, really hope Sky show that one too. Well, then there's not a hope of Sky showing that one. Like, because, you know, at, at least, you know, Tyrone and Meath, there's an element of, of attack and play in that. Like, there's going to be absolutely none in the in the Carlo-Tyrone game. 
in fairness to me, I, I did feel slightly sorry for them. It, mm. To all intents and purposes, it looked like they should have had a penalty um, at one point. But regardless, the free that they were denied in the last minute was... Was a shocker. Yeah. It was a shocker, in fairness. Yeah. Um, but with Tyrone March on. In fairness, the, the tie of the round in the qualifiers, and you would be almost guaranteed open football in it, is Tipperary Mayo. How are you feeling, Pat? Like... You know, you had you had to endure yesterday. Tipperary go seeing their own death played out in front of them in, in injury time in the hurling, and then you wake up this morning trying to face the world, being a better man, and you listen to the qualifier draw, and they get Mayo. And Tom Parsons um, pulling out uh, his own men to play Mayo, and then Tom Parsons had a brilliant quote, but said something like, "These are the kind of teams that you need to meet along yeah, the way. You got to play them, you yeah. know, with the little lads." Tom Parsons that clearly wants my summer to be over right quite quickly, doesn't he? Well, it's <laughs> poor old Tom Parsons. <laughs> you know, he's having a worse summer than all That's of us true, now. Yeah, yeah. And, and 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 all he needs to do is just one loose remark, and all of a sudden people turn. <laughs> Actually, he got a, he got a standing ovation at the at the Gaelic grounds on in, on Saturday evening. And I thought it was lovely. Um, in fairness, nobody I think in the country dislikes Tom no. Parsons and would wish him. But that'll that'll be a decent game, you know. T- uh, Tip Mayo in Thurles. Uh It'll be a serious game. It should be a serious game. Yeah. Uh, the hope for Tipperary is that um, Mayo are still kind of kicking the dirty diesel out of their engine for the for the summer ahead. And like Tipperary underperformed grossly against mm. Cork the last day. They are a better team than that, and so the hope is that they put in one of their big performances it is terrible when a season kind of gets away like it just shows how easily a season can can get away from you you know Tipperary you know what they they miss out on on promotion to division one by very very little uh they go into the championship they get absolutely ridden with the draw having to play Waterford one week and then Cork six days later no an, an underperformance against Cork and now they have Mayo in the qualifiers it's like for for a season that should have been full of hope and promise and was right up until almost the end of the league, and then it you know it kind of crumbles like this unless they pull out a huge performance. Right, I think we better move on before <laughs> you just depress me anymore with your talk. <laughs> okay, we'll we'll take a bit of a sting and then we'll talk about the hurling afterwards. Shocking scenes in the Munster Championship yesterday, Pat. They actually decided to get rid of a couple of the teams. After all the fun we were all having, after everything that was so much enjoyment for all the world, uh, they actually started kicking people out. Yes, Tiberi and Waterford have fallen by the wayside. Uh, uh, Sean Morn, who we have on the line here now, was referring to it as being a mystery tour. And it kind of was really, wasn't it? it um, a magical mystery tour. Not magical for uh, Tipperary anymore, Pat, but we'll draw a, a discreet veil over that and yet continue to talk about it. Um, Sean, thanks for coming on with us. Uh, what did you make of uh, the game in Thurles yesterday? It was um, in keeping with the rest of the competition, a barn burner right to the end. Yeah, it, 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 it was, but in, in, in a strange way, when, when you looked at us uh, unfolding, um, were Clare to have lost us uh, that way, it would have been you know maintaining a, a trend of their their, their their difficulties in you know closing out uh, matches, uh, particularly ones that end end in in, in a sort of a tight uh, conclusion. Uh, but instead, uh, they were the ones who essentially did the uh, did the did the filching uh, here because they were they were trailing for so much of of the match. They did well probably to 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 limit. Damage, stay on tips, coattails, and put themselves in a position where they could take advantage of, uh, you know, a, a, a timely score, which the, the goal was obviously. Um, but uh, at, at the very end, I thought they were very impressive. At the at the end, just sort of taking the match by the, the scruff of the neck and firing over the points. I mean, they when Noel McGrath restored Tips' lead, there were a whole series of markers through the second half, which made you think, ah, you know. Clare have done their best but Tipper kind of back in control of this and uh, when Noel McGrath uh, immediately restored their lead in injury time you thought ah, it's probably not going to be Clare's day but they, they rattled off the, the next three scores you know to, to, to level lead and uh, seal the game um, great scores at the end by, by Peter Peter Duggan who had a fine match on, on, on the freeze and um, I was impressed with Clare, but I'd been kind of impressed with, by them beating Waterford in Ennis, even though it was a kind of a lower key achievement than going to Thurles and, and beating Tip. For, for Tip, it was kind of of a 
of a type with their, their their season. I mean, it's amazing to look at it and see that they've played four round robin matches in in Munster and not won any of them. Um, obviously, I mean they've been competitive in in all of them, but there was this sense that Tip have been running on empty this year. Um, certainly since the the league final, uh, as uh, Nicky English has always made the point that Tip need to come out of the league with a settled team and they in fact came out of the league with an unravelling team and it seemed to just unravel further as, as the championship went on so in a way you know the end of the road for Tip wasn't that, that surprising although it would have been a huge surprise if we'd been told it at the start of the championship That sequence um, Sean that led to the clear goal involved Jake Morris hitting the post the ball being cleared to midfield a Tipperary player colliding with a Clare player and being hurt Brendan Maher coming across to cover the next phase of the attack and seriously injuring himself uh, in the effort, it looks like. And then Ian Galvin putting in the net. You could kind of say that it's indicative of some of the bad luck that Tipperary have had, but really they've brought a lot of it on themselves this season, as you say, through unsettled team and a lack of defensive nous the whole year. Yes, um, I, I I would agree with that. Pat, um, they have been unfortunate. I mean, injuries have played a, a role. Uh, you know, when you, you even look at uh, Seamus Callanan yesterday, I mean, again, I mean, Callanan works hard and he's, he's, a, he's, a, he's a kind of an, inte- he's an intelligent player to have around the place, but it's clear that he's, he's not in top gear yet. He's still coming back from a long-term absence. And uh, I think that was always a concern for them. I mean, Jason Ford has sort of uh, patched it up in terms of, of free-taking and being a, a go-to scorer and done, and done well uh, this year, which made actually his miss um, in, uh, in, I, in, I think it was the 70th minute, so surprising uh, because he'd been metronomic in his, his free-taking. But in terms of the bad luck, yeah, injuries have, have played a role, uh, you know, uh, and it was fairly gloomy to see Brendan Maher being helped off at the end. I would have, uh, just to make a point about about the the goal, uh, some part of it that you didn't refer to was the Podge Collins run, and I just re- reference it because I think it was a big call for Clare uh, before half time to take off Conor McGrath uh, and send on Podge Collins. But it was they, they were more than vindicated. He had a great match. I mean, I, I don't know if I, I was overhyping it, but in the report I said, you know, arguably his best match since you know the since the good days in in 2013. He, he was everywhere and he was a real menace for them. He shot three points. It was his run right through the centre of the, the tip defence that, that, that created the chance for, for, for Galvin. But I wouldn't disagree with the fact that on top of everything else, uh, you know, unsettled selections, loss of form and all the rest, and there has been ill luck for tip in terms of injuries and, and that sort of thing. Just on Pudge, uh, Sean, and you wouldn't have heard this uh, uh, because you weren't watching on TV, but uh, as uh, he came on and Conor McGrath went off, you very rarely get uh, certainly a commentator, not a pundit, but a commentator, but Marty Morrissey on TV was kind of going, hmm... I don't. I don't particularly understand that. You know when when uh, and and it was it was like thirty seconds before the halftime whistle. It was an injury time in, uh, at the end of the first half that Collins came on for McGrath. But it, you don't often hear like a commentator go, "Wow, that's that seems like an odd one to me." And yet uh, it was utterly justified in the end, as you say. Yeah, I, I asked uh, John Maloney afterwards. I mean, was 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 Conor McGrath injured? Because uh, it seemed odd, mm. uh, even if it was a tactical switch to do it within seconds of the uh, of the interval. And uh, he said, no, no, he he, he wasn't beyond uh, you know he, he, certain niggles uh, that, were, that were wrong. It, it seemed to me as if um, he was more or less saying, no, we we, we felt it wasn't running for him uh, t- t- today, and therefore we decided to make a make a switch. Um, but of course, when you you know you. You see Conor McGrath at his best. It's kind of unthinkable to imagine replacing him. But uh, he hasn't been as prominent uh, this year. But I suppose we were all a bit surprised to see him being replaced at that juncture in the match, unless there was an injury, which there appears not not to have been. But uh, Podge Collins definitely, you know, took his t- took his chance. I thought I thought he I thought he was excellent uh, yesterday. And uh, they, they there, there is an issue, of course. And uh, just referring back to what Pat was saying about you know Tip not having the luck run for them in this. One of the things possibly is the, you know, the fourth week running because although we, we, we've spoken before about how tips seem impervious to the, the kind of the, 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 the fading form involved in the, the week after week sequencing because their own form is so erratic uh, even in, in the earlier weeks. But uh, I, 
Nicky English was making the point in his uh, analysis um, for, for today's paper that, uh, you know, tip faded badly at the end of both halves. And and the, the, mm. maybe there was the, maybe there was a, a, an issue there, and it's true. Like Claire got back to the table at the, uh, in the, in the at the end of the first half with, with a run of scores, and obviously they they basically overtook uh, Tip at the end of the second half uh, with, with a burst of scores. So maybe that pl- played a role as well. And I think the GA are probably going to have to look at this and look at uh, that the idea that this sequencing has proved to have maybe more of a substantive impact on things than than would have been intended at the, at the start. Well, it's funny actually you say that, Sean. I was thinking about this over the weekend because I was in, in Nolan Park on Saturday night. Um, how, whatever way it has worked out, each team, so four teams uh, by the end will have played four weeks in a row, the teams that had their bye at the start or, or their bye at the end. And each of those four teams are playing their fourth game or it has worked out have played their fourth game or will have played their fourth game against a team that had a bye the week before. So Tipperary uh, played Clare, who were off last week. So they were four weeks, four games in 21 days playing against a team that hadn't had a game for 13 days. Same with uh, Wexford on uh, Saturday night against Kilkenny. Same with Offaly against Dublin. And the same next week with Cork, uh, Watford against Cork. Um, whatever about, you know, uh, it being unfair or, or whatever, and teams having to play three weeks in a row, four weeks in a row, they can surely come up with some level of sequencing that the team that they're playing doesn't hasn't had the week off the week before. Yeah, um, that that's an interesting stat. All, all right, uh, and uh, although again, I mean, uh, Nicky English was making the point that Wexford looks to have more energy uh, and uh, and sharpness, um, certainly for the first forty minutes in, in Nolan Park than they had the previous week in, in their third match. I think probably. You know the GAs would have to look at a break week for everyone. So, in other words, that you can kind of dilute the impact of this uh, over over the course of uh, of the round robin, because uh, it has definitely created issues for for the teams that have have to do it. And and it is kind of random. You know, you look at Offaly in, in Leinster, the you know the the panel that would have had the the least depth, and they had to play four four in a row. So, I mean, they were absolutely banjacks by the end of it. Uh, and I think when you have five team groups, uh, all you can do is is declare a general weekend off. Because I think just using using the uh, the bye weeks uh, is creating problems. And I think that's probably going to be one of the issues they'll have to take up. Malachy, the first on Saturday evening, the first 25 minutes of Wexford Kilkenny fell behind Sky's Iron Curtain. But, <laughs> but, uh, They're black button. They're black button indeed, yeah. Um, they made us watch um, Meath versus Tyrone instead. Uh, but you saw all of it. What did you think of Wexford? And they did seem to hit a wall at around the 50-minute mark. Ah, uh, yeah. I mean, like, there's no... There, there, there is no argument but uh, to, be, to be made other than, than tiredness nixed them uh, in the end because they were... Certainly, uh, uh, and as Nicky says, certainly for the first 35, 40 minutes, they were really on it and really as much sort of uh, driven by uh, trying to wash out their rotten performance against Galway the previous week. That seemed to be it. And they were so slick and so clever. Their movement was perfect. They were... uh, like uh, Dermot O'Keefe scored a a lovely point that, that you could see on TV kind of looked like a systems failure from Kilkenny because uh, all he did was catch a puck out and put it over the bar. But his actual, it was right down in front of of the press box. His actual run, he he nearly kind of smuggled his way out of the kind of thicket of uh, of players in the in the Wexford half-back line, Kilkenny half-forward line, and sort of stolen his way out, tiptoed out to the sideline and it was just a beautifully worked and Mark Fanning kind of waited on him waited on him and waited till he got out there and it looked it, it ended up being like the simplest score of the day like the goalkeeper pucked it to him he pucked it over the bar but the running that went into it just showed a kind of a, an intent and a purpose and um, a, a sort of the, an, an on-it-ness they, they were on it so well at that point and in the second half like in the second half, Damien O'Keefe had to be taken off. Mm. He was wrecked. 
he was absolutely because he's so full of running he's so wholehearted and he's like he's one of Wexford's best players but he was taken off on the arrow mark because like at one point over in front of Davy, he failed to rise the ball and Kilkenny went away and got a score and he was just out on his feet um, It was no coincidence that the Kilkenny bench played a huge part Five points off the bench yeah. you know and you know and and, and if you even look at the five points that they scored, there was nobody around them. You know, Richie Lahey scored two uh, from, from like, uh, I think Martin Keown dished one off to him. John Donnelly scored two. Like, f- for one of them, definitely for one of them and maybe for the other, he had time to kind of stand, look at the post and set himself. And he was only standing on the 45. Like, mm. it's not like he was, uh, uh, you know, a, a mile out in midfield. He was totally within the scoring zone, but had time to just kind of set himself and pop it over the bar. And Joey Holden came running forward uh, for what we couldn't, I couldn't verify it in the press box, but nobody else could remember him ever scoring a point for Kilkenny before. And it was on the run, breaking out of defence, nobody near him. And it was, it, you know, just their fresh leggedness and look, the sheer codiness of Kilkenny to, to not give up, even though they had been nine points down in the first half. Um, was was in evidence, but yeah, the legs the legs were a big a big difference, and it, so much so. Look, if and you know, Wexford have a month off now. Their next game will be against Westmeath or Carlo. If they come across Kilkenny again, I I would be back in Wexford. I I, I would imagine. I, I you know when the game was a game in the first half when when they were on top of the ground, they were the better team. You know, there was no no question about it. Sean, Brian Cody for years seemed to be almost allergic to making substitutions and he made three of them at half time uh, on Saturday evening, which kind of shows, I suppose, his awareness and how good he is at um, meeting new challenges as they come to him, if you like. He knew that the team needed to be freshened up and he wasn't shy about taking off like Richie Hogan and Colin Fennelly. Um, I think Conor O'Shea was the third substitution. Yeah. Um, how impressive did you think Kilkenny were in that second half? Well, I suppose I was struck by a couple of things. One is that Kilkenny are having, I think, difficulties putting together, you know, uh, a cast iron first choice 15. Um, but what they do have is after the league, they, they've, they've, they've quite a uh, quite a panel of, of, of players who've played up to a, a certain standard. And when they came off the bench, uh, you know, they, they, they performed well. But I felt with Wexford that maybe the problem was, wasn't uh, so much the you know, the, the the physical fatigue of the efforts they put in the first half, but there did seem to be a mental fatigue uh, with them, you know, in terms of things like shot selection and execution. I mean, the number of frees they missed, the, the kind of shots, that they, the speculative shots that they that they put wide, it really seemed like uh, they were uh, they, they were treading water uh, mentally by, by by that stage, uh, and I would have a I'd have a slight uh, caveat. I mean, I take Maliki's point that you know they will be rested and they'll be back, and uh, that they uh, were the better team. You know, when 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 the match was being contested over the first forty minutes, but I just wonder about the the mental uh, aspect of it. I would feel that, and and this is I don't know if it's something that Cody. Targeted. I'm sure he wasn't pleased with the with with the events of, la, of last year, but to you know, for want of a better phrase, put Wexford back in their box. And uh, you know, this this year they've played four times, and Kilkenny have won three of them, and they've won the three most important ones. And uh, I would be interested to see if they if, if they played again. I take Maliki's point that I think when Wexford were in full space, you know, they they, they were impressive, and Kilkenny didn't look to have, have any answers. Um, I don't think there's there, there's much between them but I thought that uh, whereas on one level Wexford might have done well to, to stay in, in touch at the end most with Paddy Coe's freeze uh, or Paddy Foley's freeze but at the, at the same time I, I, I felt the chance was still there for them you know to get to, to get a draw out of that which would have put them in, in the Leinster final and, and they, they didn't take it now maybe as I say this is the, the mental effects of, of playing four weeks in a row um, you know a light to the physical effects but I would have a slight question mark uh, over Wexford in, in the context of Saturday I think you're right in fairness Sean and, and I should have I should have said uh, the the one caveat I'd put, put to that uh, is that Wexford don't have TJ Reid and they don't have if you, if you look around the games this weekend and you look at the sheer weight of free taking 
that's going on w- with all these teams now. Like Shane Dowling scored 13 frees. Peter Duggan scored 13, 13 frees. Yeah. Uh, TJ, I think, had nine frees and a 65. Wexford's free-taking is is a bit better this year. Like R- Rory O'Connor is, is better than the sort of combination of Conor McDonald and Lee Chin that they had last year. And Paddy Foley was immense on Saturday night, especially with his free taking in in the in the last um, the second half and and certainly in the last fifteen minutes. But a key element of Kilkenny's ability to come back into these games is that nothing is missed by TJ Reid. Absolutely, like every time the ball is put on the ground, he goes and takes it, and that keeps them in games. There's a tick tock drip drip of him keeping Kilkenny in games. And they can rely on that, and that is, that is that is uh, the one thing that I'm not sure Wexford particularly. Have. Yeah, I, I think that's I think that's that that, that that's fair, and I, I think one of the uh, testaments to those sort of free takers, uh, TJ Reid and Jason Ford has been another, is it becomes a kind of a geopolitical talking point when one gets missed. And yeah. in the first half, TJ Reid missed really easy. There was one, gasps, could, Sean. I see, can tell you, there was gasps yeah, in Nolan and, Park. And you could see like uh, uh, Brian Cody looked kind of you know astonished on the line and it was a real kind of you know summary of the way things were going for 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 for, for Kilkenny and and similarly like when when Jason Ford missed that one uh, at the end because uh, it was a real critical you know mental watershed David McInerney got done for over carrying on the way out of defense and gave away the free and way forward had been shooting you know you know, could almost mark down the score uh, and yeah, he put it wide same with TJ Reid now he came back into it but I, I think that's a good point I think that uh, for top teams now have to have you know an impeccable um, uh, free taker in, in their armoury um, otherwise they're going to lose ground to the opponents Pat we're going uh, miles over time so we won't even get to, to poor Waterford and, and their exit from the championship um, but we'll finish off with Limerick uh, you uh, saw uh, bits and pieces of this uh, last night and they're they're the kind of the team of the championship so far like there's they're certainly and I remember when we did our, our preview podcast here uh, and we were looking around for bolters we kind of said is it nearly too obvious to say Limerick but I think even just the manner of how impressive they've been has been surprising, rather than, rather than so much the fact that they have been impressive. Well, we marked them down as bolters like from the start of the year, but we didn't expect to get to uh, June tenth and have them as joint second favourites for the All Ireland and top of the top of the table in Munster, top yeah. of the table, and also in a way. Uh, and I think the game with Clare next Saturday, we're all looking or next Sunday, we're all looking forward to that one. But also. Looking further ahead, you kind of would love to see them play Galway at some point because they look like a team that has the the physical nature to match Galway, even though they're slightly different. Galway can look like a team of linebackers sometimes out mm. there and they make the pitch small by by dint of their size almost. Uh, Limerick also managed to make the pitch look small, but they're more like a rangy 800 metre runners. They have incredible pace as well as being big lads. And they cover the ground so well. It was it was amazing watching them against Waterford. Kyle Hayes a few times. He'd get a break, he'd pick up a loose ball. And if he got a step in his man, that was it. You weren't catching him. Yeah. And he was just sprinting away from people. They they have such a fantastic defensive system that's settled and perfect. They move the ball through the midfield, through O'Donovan and um, Keane Lynch. And it, they, they know exactly what they're doing. And John Kiley knows exactly what he wants them to do, more importantly. And they really do look like serious contenders. Sean, I made an appalling error in my front page piece in the Irish Times this morning where I said that uh, Cork and Clare are playing a de facto uh, uh, Munster semi-final on Sunday. Of course, it's Limerick and Clare down in Ennis. Uh, uh, that promises to be, like, that. that's a, a serious game down in Ennis now on Sunday. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really interesting because when you look at it, like, just as... There is sur- surprise that you know that uh, last year's All Ireland finalists and uh, and other of the semi finalists have exited the, the championship by mid June. I think you know the 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 the, the also runs of recent years in Munster have been Limerick and and, and Clare, uh, and um, I know that maybe Hart and Clare won an All Ireland five years ago, but, but the recent years have have not been great for them, and. Uh, in a way, I, I think that just as the uh, the original um, backdoor system, for want of a better phrase, was introduced in '97 to partly to 
sure the teams that maybe didn't have a big tradition uh, could could maybe grow outside their province, even if they lost the provincial final. I think this round robin has helped Clare and uh, and Limerick find a, a bit of. Uh, you know, find a bit of confidence uh, along the way. Uh, and, you know, you look at Clare, because if th- this was, um, you know, the previous format, they'd lost their first match to Cork. Like, they'd be on the, the high roads and the by roads um, of, of the qualifiers, if, if, if that were the case. But instead, they kind of they built it up and, uh, you know, got a really uh, momentous win yesterday. I didn't realise the first time since 1928 they've beaten Tip in the Championship in Thurles. Uh, and and they, they go forward. And, and, and Limerick, obviously, have done a bit of what Clare did earlier in the decade in, in establishing a big base with successful under-21s and I think the two of them uh, come, coming together is, uh, is, is a very interesting emergence in, in, in Munster and uh, in a way it will be an interesting Munster final although I suspect it will be hard for Cork to be kept out of the, the final on the last day fixtures but it's it's definitely and you know you got a, an email this is the terrific thing about the this is that you know and i would have had huge reservations because the gail isn't by his nature a, a round robin sort of guy and uh you you were afraid that you know interest levels would wane and you know dead rubbers would would would, would, would kind of blight attendances and that but we got an email uh yesterday evening saying that you know that all the retail outlets were now sold out of tickets for Ennis uh, next next weekend it's extraordinary uh, isn't it so it's 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 really uh, it's it's a fitting climax uh, to it and of course it is probably effectively a, a semi-final so it'll be a great afternoon. and that's the thing i mean it's not even it's not even a climax like there there's still the monster final to come yeah, after yeah. that and winning the monster final is 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 a huge thing you know because it, uh, it eases your passage into into the all ireland semi-final it is it is an yeah. actual verifiable tangible goal yeah, it's it's funny actually that we got by. I mean, it was the climax of the round robin mm. series, but you're right, the, the climax is actually the final. Yeah. It's, it's almost as if we've lost track of the of, of you know the, the the end game and all of this, which yeah. is to win the title and obviously <laughs> you know move into the semi final yeah. and bypass all the traffic uh, that that goes on um, in between. But uh, but it's it's going to be uh, it's going to be very 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 interesting, and I think you you do have. Two teams now that uh, the one way or the other are going to have a big influence on how things unfold. Indeed. Listen, Sean, thanks a million for joining us, and You're more than uh, welcome. we will see you as the time goes by. Thanks very much to Jerry, who was on with us earlier from Australia. Thank you to you, Pat. Thanks, Maliki. And thank you to Jenny. Thank you to JJ. Uh, see you all next week, folks. Take it easy.